It was an amazing experience. I was with a team from our church doing some ministry in southern Uganda, an area called Kosoro. We were training pastors and church leaders that were living in southern Uganda and in Congo and Rwanda. And our worship pastor, Joey, was doing some teaching one morning about leading worship in the context of a local church. And during his, during his uh, lesson, he mentioned the song, It Is Well. And Pastor George stopped everything at that moment. You remember Pastor George? Pastor George has been here at our church. God saved him living there in Kosoro and has used him as a mighty catalyst to plant churches in that area. And Pastor George stopped and he said, we, we know that song. And he signaled to them, they were about to sing right there in the middle of the lesson, It Is Well. And they began to sing, but they were singing in Kifumbira. But we understood it because they were singing the same melody that we're used to when we sing, It Is Well With My Soul. So they were singing in Kifumbira, we were singing in English, and it was awesome. I'm just telling you, it was an incredible experience. The Lord just, just met with us in that moment as we sang, It Is Well With My Soul. So there's something about that hymn that united our hearts. Well, this morning we're going to study a first century hymn. A, a hymn that uh, I bet had the same effects among, among the Christians that lived in that first century. It united hearts because it is so filled with wonderful truth. And so I want you to see this hymn, Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, turn there with me. As we continue our study through this wonderful New Testament book, Colossians chapter 1, we're going to begin reading in verse 15. We're going to read down through verse 23. I want to ask you this morning, if you're physically able, to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. The Bible says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Speaking of Jesus. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things. And in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body of the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name, and we are so, we're so grateful, Lord, for your word. Lord, we 
we gather today, we fellowship today around the Word of God. It is a foundation for our life, a foundation for our ministry, foundation for our church. Your Word is the final authority for faith and for practice. And we come with expectant hearts. We, we expect you to speak to us today. We expect for you to work in our midst. And I pray that by your Spirit you would grant us the gift of illumination, that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we might see the timeless truths of Scripture, and that Jesus might be exalted in this place. So Lord, have your way. Change our lives for the glory of your name. Lord, I ask you to establish my steps today in your word, and we ask and we pray all of this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. As we've worked our way through the book of Colossians, we've seen that this is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a group of Christians in first century Asia Minor. Paul wrote this letter from jail. He was in prison for preaching the gospel, and during his time in jail, he had heard a report from Epaphras concerning how this church was doing, the church in Colossae. He had heard some things that uh, were encouraging. He had heard some things that were concerning. So in response to this report, Paul writes the church a letter to affirm them in the things he heard that were good and to address the concerns that he had. And undoubtedly, when this letter arrived in Colossae, a leader in the church stood up and gathered everyone together and said, I'm going to read a letter from the Apostle Paul. And perhaps when that church leader was reading the letter, when he got to verse 15, what we know is verse 15, and began to read this hymn, someone said, stop, wait a minute. I know that hymn. Let's stop and sing it. Just like Pastor George did in Kosoro, Uganda. I don't know if that's how it happened, but we do know that verses 15 through 20 constitute an early church hymn. And the reason scholars believe this is a hymn is because of the repetition, the poetic way repetition is used throughout this section. And also, scholars believe this has a rhythmic lilt. It's a very singable uh, passage. And so probably this was used in worship in the early church. And this hymn is a great hymn because it's about a great Savior. And it has two basic parts. Now, we looked at the first part a few weeks ago, when we studied verses 15 through 20, we said that this hymn describes the nature of Christ or who Christ is. And you remember what we said about that? We said that Jesus is the creator of all, he's the sustainer of all, he's the ruler of all, and he's the point of it all. That's what we said about the nature of Christ. But not only does this, does this hymn detail the nature of Christ, it celebrates the work of Christ, what he has done. And I want to talk to you today about what Jesus Christ has done. The work he has accomplished for you and for me. And the work of Christ revolves around four words. I want to give you these four words to just kind of work our way through this passage as we think about his work. The first word I want to give you is the word incarnation. Incarnation. Look what the Bible says there in verse 19. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him or in Christ. So it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness, play Roma, the fullness to dwell in Christ. Now, here's the question. What's he talking about? The fullness of what? What did the Father want to fully dwell in the person of His Son? Well, that question is answered for us in chapter 2, verse 9. Look there with me. 
Paul expands this thought a little. In chapter 2, verse 9, Paul writes, For in him, in Christ, watch this, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. That's what the incarnation is all about. The fullness of deity dwells in human form, dwells in bodily form. This speaks of the incarnation. In other words, Jesus had to take on human flesh. Now, the word fullness in verse 19 of chapter 1 speaks of the sum total of all the divine power and attributes. And so, in, in the person of Christ, we see the fullness of deity. Not just, not just some deity, not just some power, not just some of God's attributes. Jesus possesses full divinity. He's fully God. You might say he's 100% God. But this divinity, this deity, dwells in human flesh. Jesus Christ is also 100% human, 100% man. He took on our humanity when he came to this earth. And the word dwell there means to be at home permanently. So forever and ever and ever, the fullness of God will dwell in the bodily form of Jesus Christ. He is forever the God-man. Fully God, fully man. Now, we talk about the incarnation a lot. Mostly at Christmas time. But I want you to understand that this doctrine is, is so important. Not just at Christmas time. It's so important for our Christian faith. You see, the incarnation was necessary to provide an infinite substitute. If it were not for the incarnation, you and I could not experience salvation. But we're not for the incarnation, you and I could not be saved. If it were not for the incarnation, the cross and the empty tomb would have no meaning for us. Wait, why is that? Well, think about it like this. God is holy. That means he's perfect. He's light. There's no darkness in him at all. And, and get this, God is infinitely holy. His holiness knows no boundaries. It just goes on and on and on and on. That's who God is in his perfection. So when we sin against an infinitely holy God, you know what we deserve? We deserve infinite punishment. We deserve punishment that knows no boundaries, knows no end. That's why hell is forever. It goes on and on and on and on because when we go to hell for not embracing the forgiveness God provides, we will pay the penalty for our sin in that awful place. And because God is infinitely holy and our sin is an infinite uh, uh, crime against God, we'll never pay it off. We will experience infinite punishment. So for our sins to be forgiven, stay with me, someone who is infinite himself had to come and pay the price. I.e., God had to come do it. That's why it's important that that deity came and took on human flesh. You say, wait, why did Jesus have to take on human flesh? Well, he had to die as our substitute. And for justice to be carried out, a human had to die for humans, right? For him to be our sacrifice, he had to die in the place of men and women. So he had to take on that humanity. So that's why the incarnation is so important. Jesus Christ, infinite God, took on human flesh so he could go to the cross and pay the infinite debt that you and I owe, dying in our place. The incarnation is really, really important, right? And think about what Jesus left and what he came to. Jesus left the, the eternal, unbroken, 
unceasing praise of heaven to come to this earth and take on the frailty of humanity and be scorned and mocked and maligned and mistreated. He knew what he was getting into when he took on our humanity. He knew what he was getting into when he came to live among evil humanity. But he did it anyway. The incarnation. He had to take on human flesh. And I'm glad that he did. That's the first thing we see concerning the work of Christ. The fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. That's who Jesus is. But the second word I want you to see is the word crucifixion. Crucifixion. He had to die for our sins. For you and I to be saved, he had to die for our sins. Look what the Bible says in verse 20. It was God's pleasure for the fullness to dwell in him, and it was his pleasure that through him he might reconcile all things to himself. Watch this. Having made peace through the blood of his cross. Having made peace through the blood of his cross. Now it says there that God had this, this, this design to reconcile all things to himself. You see, when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, sin entered the world. And at that moment, creation was fallen and broken, including everyone that would be born from that point on. You see, you and I were born with a sin nature. It all started back in the Garden of Eden because sin corrupted their lives. Their offspring were born with, with a sin nature. You and I were born with a sin nature. We are intrinsically broken. We're not like we were created to be. We are sinners. And the creation is broken. It is fallen. But the Bible says that even before Adam and Eve sinned, listen to me, God had a plan of redemption in place whereby he might reconcile and redeem fallen creation, including fallen people. And the means that God used to provide for this reconciliation, to provide for this redemption, is the cross. He says he made peace through the blood of his cross. He had to die for our sins. Now here's what you need to understand. We'll talk about the implications in a few minutes. You need to understand that the cross was a place of great suffering. Look what the Bible says in verse 21. Although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. Jesus gave his fleshly body to die for you and for me, to die for our sins so that we might be redeemed, we might be reconciled, we might be brought to God. Crucifixion. The cross was a place of great suffering. You remember the story. I've been reading through Luke in my quiet time, the last part of Luke, and just, just I've been reminded of, of the, the brutality of the cross, the brutality of those last moments of Jesus' life. You remember what happened. He was betrayed by the kiss of a friend, and then he was delivered to uh, the high priest who took him through this mockery of a trial, and then the high priest sent him to uh, Herod and Herod, made a mockery of who Jesus was, sending him back to the high priest. The high priest brought him to Pilate, the Roman governor, and said, listen, you need to kill this man. He, he's, he's causing problems in your empire. He, he's, he's, he's causing dissension. You, you need to kill him. He claims to be a king and only Caesar's king. You need to kill him. And, and Pilate met with Jesus, and Pilate came back out and said, I, I find no fault in the man. 
I'm not going to kill him. And they, they, they cried out louder, crucify him, crucify him. And so to, to pacify the crowd, Pilate had Jesus flogged. Now, that's just a little phrase in our, in our Bibles, but you can't imagine the brutality of flogging. A, a Roman soldier trained in the dark art would take a, a long piece of leather, and on the, pe- the end of the leather, they would embed pieces of glass and bone, and then they would lay that strap across the back of the person being flogged. And every time that leather was laid across the person's back, it would pull with it pieces of the flesh. The Jews had a law. Flogging was so brutal that you could only flog someone 39 times. The Romans had no such law. And Jesus, perfect, innocent, good, gracious, kind, was beaten with that whip. Roman soldiers punched him in the face and yanked beard out of his face. They, they took a crown of thorns and, and, and drove it down on his head. The Bible records in Isaiah that when Pilate brought Jesus back out, he was so disfigured by the beating, he was not even recognizable. And that was just the beginning. Pilate said, behold the man. I've beat him. What more do you want? I find no fault. I, I'm going to release him. And, 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 and the crowd said, no, crucify him. And Pilate said, I tell you what, Every year, I release a prisoner to, to, you know, to keep the, the Jewish people happy. And, and I can release to you Barabbas, the murderer, the insurrectionist. Or I, I can release to you Jesus. And the people said, give us Barabbas. Kill Jesus. So Pilate gave in to their demands, and they took a rough wooden beam, and they placed it on his back, which had been laid open with the flogging. And they commanded him to carry that beam to the top of a hill called Golgotha. And on his way, he was so weakened from the beating, he could not bear the weight of the cross. He fell under that weight. And the Roman soldiers enlisted a man named Simon to pick up the cross and, and carry it for him to the top of that hill. When they got to the top of the hill, they, they, they laid the cross on the ground, nailed it to a cross beam, and then they laid Jesus on top of that cross, and they drove nine-inch nails through his hands. Really, where the, where the hand meets the wrist, where all the nerve endings meet, that's where they drove that nail. Maximum amount of pain. And then they, they nailed his feet to the, the vertical piece of that cross, and they picked up that cross, and they, they put it in a hole. Psalm 22 prophetically says that the jarring was so great from this that his bones came out of joint. Can you imagine that pain? And, and from, from 9 in the morning to Three in the afternoon, Jesus hung on that cross, and every time he wanted to breathe, he had to to pull up on those nails just to take a breath. He slowly suffocated until it came to about three in the afternoon, and Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, and he breathed his last. It was a place of great suffering, but listen to me. The cross went far beyond physical suffering. Not not only was he enduring the physical pain of crucifixion, the cruelest way the Romans could conceive of to kill someone, he was experiencing the pain of isolation and loneliness and separation. Listen, even from his father. Do you remember what Jesus cried out on the cross? 
He said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We, we can't understand that, but in some way, in some way, God the Father, who is holy, who is light, had to turn his back on the Son as his Son took all of our sin and iniquity and wickedness on himself. There was some sort of separation for the first time in all of eternity between God the Father and God the Son. He was in complete isolation on the cross. And so Jesus encountered physical suffering and, and emotional suffering and spiritual suffering that we can't even conceive. He did all of this to reconcile a lost and dying world, a lost and dying humanity to himself crucifixion he had to die for our sins so if someone ever asks you hey what did jesus do for me you tell them that jesus died for their sins that jesus hung on that cross from nine in the morning to three in the afternoon so that he could forgive them of their wickedness crucifixion the third word i want you to see is the word resurrection he had to rise from the dead look at verse 18 He's also head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Now remember, the, the word firstborn in this context doesn't mean first in order of things. It means preeminent over. It doesn't mean that Jesus was the first one to rise from the dead. We know that's not true because Lazarus rose from the dead before Jesus did, right? And Jairus' daughter rose from the dead before Jesus did. You even remember when Jesus was on the cross... That you remember that some, some Old Testament saints came out of their tomb when he died. Remember that? They're walking around Jerusalem. Matthew, uh, book of Matthew tells us about that. So Jesus Christ was not the first one to rise from the grave, but is saying, out of all those that have ever risen from the grave, all those that ever will rise from the grave, Jesus Christ is preeminent. And this indicates he's preeminent over those who will rise, which indicates that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Now, just like we talk about the incarnation at Christmas time, we talk about the resurrection at Easter time, but we need to understand that the resurrection is not an, not an Easter time doctrine. It's an everyday doctrine for believers. If it were not for the resurrection, we would still be in our sins. There would be no hope, no life, no peace, no forgiveness if Christ had not been raised. But he did rise from the dead. Let me say two quick things about the resurrection. Number one, the resurrection was proof that God accepted the sacrifice of Christ as a full payment for our sin. God the Father was pleased by the sacrifice of His Son, and He accepted it as the means to forgive us. Romans 4.25, write that in your notes. Romans 4.25 says that Jesus was raised for our justification. The resurrection indicated that God was going to forgive us based upon the sacrifice of His Son. Secondly, the resurrection proved that Jesus was who he said he was and could do what he said he could do. All throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus told folks, I'm going to die, I'm going to be killed, and then I'm going to rise from the grave. So when he walked out of the tomb, it proved that he was who he said he was, God on earth. He could do what he said he could do, which was give people eternal life and forgiveness of sins, the resurrection. So what did Jesus do? Jesus came to earth, he took on human flesh. Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and then Jesus gloriously defeated death. He rose from the grave. He walked out of his tomb. That's the doctrine of resurrection. But here's the fourth word I want to give you. This deals with the implications of what it means to know Jesus. 
It's the word reconciliation. Reconciliation. He brings us into a relationship with God. That's what the word means. He brings us in to a relationship with God. Now, to fully understand reconciliation, we need to, we need to walk through some steps to, to kind of wrap our minds around this word. So just kind of follow along with me in your notes. The first thing I want you to see is this. Apart from Christ, we are enemies of God. And if you don't get that, listen, if you don't get that, you'll never get the good news. You'll never understand just how good the good news is. Apart from Christ, we are enemies of God. Look what Paul says in chapter 1, verse 21 of Colossians. Speaking to the Christians in Colossians, he says, Although you were formerly, so before you met Christ, here's what your life was like. You were formerly alienated. That word alienated means estranged. It means to be separated from God. It means to not have a relationship with. Before you met Christ, formerly says you were far from God. You did not know God. You did not have a relationship with God. You were separated from God. And then look what he says. You were also hostile in mind. Your mind, the way you thought about life, your values, your beliefs, were hostile toward the things of God. And because your mind was hostile, look what it says, you were engaged in evil deeds. The Bible says that as a man thinks within himself, so he is. And if your mind is hostile to God, it's going to show up in your life. It's going to show up in your actions. So saying before you met Christ, you were hostile, you were alienated, you were engaged in evil deeds, i.e., you were enemies of God. R. Kent Hughes writes this, This is the way all people are without Christ. But humanity doesn't like to hear it. Before you met Christ, listen to me, you were an enemy of God. Because you were living your own life, doing your own thing, disobeying Him, going your own direction. You were an enemy of God. Your sin is not just an oops. Your sin is not just a mistake. Your sin is high treason against the king of the universe. Your sin, my sin, is, is, is a heinous crime against a holy God. We are enemies of God before we meet Christ. In the 17th century, a Christian woman named Lady Huntington invited one of her friends, the Duchess of Buckingham, to hear George Whitfield preach. George Whitfield, was a, he was the Billy Graham of that century, great preacher. He preached in... Uh, Great Britain, he preached in America, and, and thousands came to Christ under his preaching ministries. He went and preached the gospel. And Lady Huntington was a supporter of George Whitfield, and she wanted her friend the Duchess to come and hear him so she could hear the gospel. Well, here is the reply of the Duchess to Lady Huntington. She writes, It is monstrous to be told that you have a heart as sinful as the common wretches that crawl on the earth. This is highly offensive and insulting, and I cannot but wonder that your ladyship should relish any sentiments so much at variance with high rank and good breeding. In other words, she said, I don't want to go, listen, George Whitfield, tell me I'm a sinner. And I can't believe you want to go hear that either. We're not like the, the wretches of the earth. We're not like the, the dark corners of society. We, we have nobility in our blood. We have high social standing. I don't need anyone to tell me I'm a sinner. 
And yet the Bible says, apart from Christ, we are at enmity with God. We are enemies of God because we are going our own way. It's like the prodigal son. You know, the prodigal son is all of our stories. We, we've all had prodigal moments, have we not? When we walked away from God and disrespected Him and lived our own life far from Him. We are all enemies of God apart from Christ. But here's where it gets really, really good. God initiated reconciliation. Look what it says in verse 19. It was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. Also it was His good pleasure... That through Christ he might reconcile all things to himself. So it was God's good pleasure to do this work of reconciliation. It was God's good pleasure to provide reconciliation. God initiated it. The amazing thing is that God is the offended party. And yet he is the one that initiates reconciliation. How many of you have ever been offended by someone? Okay, those that aren't, raise your hand. You just haven't lived long enough, I guess. But we've all been offended by others. And when we're offended by someone, our posture is they need to come and, and ask for forgiveness, right? I haven't done anything wrong. And, and if they want to reconcile the relationship, they need to come and, and ask for forgiveness. And then I'll forgive them, and then everything will be right. But, but listen, they're the one that did the wrong thing, not me. They've got to take the first step if we're going to have this relationship. Well, guess what? When it comes to us being enemies of God, God's the innocent party. He's, not, he's done nothing wrong. We're the ones that have rebelled against Him. But God, in His grace, initiated reconciliation so we could come to Him and be His friend. Isn't that amazing? He's the innocent party, and yet He's the one that, that initiated the work of salvation in your life and my life. And here's the question. Why did God do that? Why did God make the first move? You know, why I'm, you know why I'm saved today? Saved when I was nine years old? You know why I stand before you as a redeemed person? Not because one day I was walking around and I just figured it all out. The, the only reason I'm saved today is because God graciously gripped my heart and showed me my need for a Savior. God initiated that work in my life. And if you're saved, it's because God initiated that work in your life. The Bible says that we love him, listen, because he first loved us. The Bible says, no one can come to me, Jesus says, unless the Father who has sent me draws him. And God, as the innocent party, provided and initiated reconciliation. And he did it because of his great love for you and me. Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God's desire to save you is driven by, motivated by his love for you. And if you ever doubt the love of God, just look to the cross. The cross is the supreme demonstration of the love of God. Warren Wiersbe writes, How can a holy God ever be reconciled with sinful man? 
Can God lower his standards, close his eyes to sin, and compromise with man? If he did, the universe would fall to pieces. God must be consistent with himself and maintain his own holy law. Perhaps man could somehow please God, but by nature man is separated from God, and by his deeds he is alienated from God. The sinner is dead in trespasses and sins, and therefore is unable to do anything to save himself or to please God. He writes, If there is to be reconciliation between man and God, the initiative and action must come from God. So by virtue of the fact that God gripped your heart, showed you your need for a Savior, and allowed you to hear the gospel, you ought to thank Him for His grace. Also, how did this reconciliation actually happen? Jesus died to forgive our rebellion against God. Look in verse 22. He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death. He died on the cross. He, he shed his blood. He, he gave his body to be broken so that our rebellion that keeps us as enemies of God could be washed away. It could be forgiven and we could become friends of God. So in Christ, we have peace with God and become his friend. Look in verse 20. God's pleasure was that through Christ, he might reconcile all things to himself, having made peace. Everybody say peace. Having made peace through the blood of his cross. So listen to me, apart from Christ, you're an enemy of God. But when you meet Christ, you have peace with God. You become his friend. Is that not amazing? That's what it means to be a Christian. It means you're a friend of God now. You don't deserve it, but you've accepted the free gift of eternal life. Jesus has washed away your sins. You've trusted Christ instead of trying to work your way to heaven. And when you do that, you become a friend of God. Now I want to give you just a quick few words of application and we'll be through. About, about reconciliation. You think about this great work of, of Christ. Number one, if you are a friend of God, act like it. Amen? Act like it. Listen, people should be able to look at your life and see by your walk that you walk closely with God. Look what the Bible says there in Colossians 1, verse 22. He has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. In other words, when Jesus forgives you, he presents you before the Father as clean. He washed away your sins. He robed you in his righteousness. So now you have this position before a holy God that you are clean, pure, blameless, holy because Jesus took care of your sin problem, right? Now that's your position. And what Paul's saying here is let your practice line up with your position. Let your practice come to greater conformity with your position. If you are a saint, if you've been forgiven, if you are saved, live like it. Let people see the difference that Jesus makes in your life. Look what he says in the next verse. He says, If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. In other words, Paul's saying, If you're the real deal, if you've really been saved, you will continue in the faith. It'll show up in your life. If you're the real deal, your life will bear it out because Jesus will be changing your life. In other words, as we continue in the faith, it proves that we've really met Jesus. Can I just say this to you? 
if you live your life and there's not a growing conformity to Christ, maybe it's because you're not really friends of God. Because when you're a friend of God, Jesus will change you. And your life will begin to look more and more like it. So, if you're a friend of God, act like it. Let your practice line up with your position. Live like someone that walks with God, that really is a friend of God. Number two, if you are a friend of God, rejoice. Turn to Romans with me very quickly. Romans 5. Another passage that deals with reconciliation, becoming a friend of God. Romans 5. Look in verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. Same idea. Enemies that became his friend because of Jesus. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, look at verse 11. But we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So here's what he's saying. We're reconciled to God, we're friends of God, and we're happy about it. We rejoice, we exult, he says. We, 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 are, we, are, we are thrilled that we can be called friends of God. You know the kind of people I like to be around, people that really fuel my spiritual tank, are people that are saved and they've just never gotten over it. They just, they're just constantly amazed that they're a friend of God. They know they don't deserve it. They knew who they were before they met Christ. Acutely aware that they were enemies of God. But now that they've been saved by the grace of God, they've been reconciled to God through the cross, now they just can't get over what it means to be redeemed. Here's my question. Come in close. Have you gotten over it? Do you, do, you, do you understand how amazing it is that we can say we're friends of God? Friends of God? If you're a friend of God, rejoice! Celebrate what it means to be His friend. And then last, if you're a friend of God, introduce Him to others. That's what you do with friends, right? You introduce Him to others. Turn to 2 Corinthians 5. One more passage that deals with reconciliation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, another Pauline letter. Look in verse 17. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God. Who Here it is again who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Listen to me. If you've been reconciled, if you're a friend of God, God has given you a new ministry. Your ministry is to be a reconciler. Your ministry is to help others hear the gospel so they can be reconciled to God too. Look what he says. Namely, verse 19, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us, folks that are friends of God, he's committed to us 
the word of reconciliation. Question, whose responsibility is it to tell a lost and dying world that reconciliation is available? Whose? Us. He gave it to us. Look what it says. It gets even better. Therefore, we are ambassadors for, for Christ as though God, watch this, we're making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So when we share Christ with others, God is working through us to, to reconcile them. He's pleading through our lives. Here's what that means. If you're a friend of God, if you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, you ought to want others to be friends of God too. You want to introduce other enemies of God to the cross so they can be forgiven and be a friend of God themselves. You are now a minister of reconciliation. God has given you that message to share. And when you share it, he pleads through you to others. is that an awesome thought? That when you share the gospel, the God of heaven is pleading through you? If you're a friend of God, introduce him to others. My best friend growing up was a... a, a He's a man now. His name is Kelly Armstrong, and he and I were great friends. And let's just say that Kelly came up to visit with me here. He spent a couple weeks with the Humphreys family, and and I brought Kelly with me. Every time I was at church, I'd bring Kelly with me. But let's just say that that I never introduced him to anybody. He just kind of walked around with me, and I didn't want anybody to really know about him, or I didn't say, hey, here's Kelly, here's my... If I never introduced him to anyone, you would think, a couple things. Number one, he must not be that good of a friend. Number two, maybe, Wade, you're a little ashamed of him. Right? Wouldn't you, wouldn't you think that if I never introduced my friend to you? Wouldn't you? Now listen to me. What does that say about us? when we never introduce our friend, the Lord, to others. It must mean, number one, he's not that good of a friend. Or maybe even number two, we're a little ashamed of him. We're afraid it might be offensive to share him with others. But if he really is our friend, there should be this innate desire in us to share him with others because he is good. Amen? There's no greater privilege than being called a friend of God. There's no greater joy than having a personal relationship with the God of the universe. And so if you're a friend of God, if I'm a friend of God, our job is to be ambassadors, to, to introduce him to others so they can be friends of God too. So we see that this hymn celebrates the work of Christ. It, it, it describes the nature of Christ, who he is, and it celebrates the work of Christ, what he has done. And it's a great hymn, is it not? I wonder if maybe there were some Jews that were passing through Asia Minor. They were visiting with their Christian brothers and sisters in Colossae, and maybe someone broke out Colossians 1, 15 through 20. And began to sing it in, in their language. And the Jewish people said, we know that song. And they began to sing it in their language. And the great doctrines of this hymn united their hearts. Just like it did for us on that day in Kasor, Uganda. 
a great hymn for a great Savior.